to introduce to you our speaker this morning, Gavin Breeden. Gavin is one of our campus ministers that Roger was just praying for just a moment ago, part of the Nashville Presbytery, the regional gathering of churches uh, within the Presbyterian Church of America, the denomination of which we are a part. There are several different denominational agencies. Uh, you've heard an allusion already made uh, in the Cherokee mission trip that we took. That's under the auspices of Mission to the World, because technically uh, the Cherokee nation is actually a sovereign nation. That's a whole technical, complicated thing to understand, but it is. So hence, it's under the auspices of Mission to the World. There's also Mission to North America uh, that oversees the ministries of some of our chaplains in our midst this morning. Uh, if there also there's Ridgehaven and Covenant Seminary and Covenant College and some other agencies. I won't go into the long list, but RUF, Reform University Fellowship, is our campus ministry, the, the campus ministry of the <clears throat> Presbyterian Church in America that we gladly, gladly, gladly uh, support here. Uh, some of you are even alumni uh, of that as, as well, and I know every one of you gladly so who can say that. Uh, Gavin is at Tennessee Tech in Cookville. We should have just stopped and picked you up on the way here yesterday, which saved you. Well, I don't know. You still would have gotten back, right? So anyway, Gavin, come on up here. It's good to have you here. Thank you. Thank you, Sean. Well, it's good to be with you all again. Um, it's always a pleasure to, to be with this church. I, I preached here just a couple couple months ago at the end of May, and um, you may remember me talking about a tree branch that fell through our roof and our ceiling of the house we're renting. So just a personal follow-up, we've, we've moved houses now, so it's all, all, all taken care of. So um, It is good to be with you just to say thank you. Thank you for praying for us so, so faithfully and diligently. Thank you for supporting our ministry and supporting RUF and this presbytery. We really value that. Um, RUF at Tennessee Tech is now entering, this fall will be the 21st year of RUF's presence at Tennessee Tech. It will be the beginning of my third year there. So we're very thankful for the Lord's work and thankful to be a part of that. Um, and again, thankful for you. Um, if you do think of it, you can be praying for RUF. This week is the RUF, uh, we have two times of training, a couple times of training every year. But this next week is, is the big one in Atlanta. All the RUF campus ministers, all the RUF interns, um, all the staff, everyone gathers in Atlanta for just a lot of training, a lot of encouragement. Um, and so it's a time that I look forward to just personally as a pastor to have the fellowship with other pastors, to have the you know, encouragement from them, but also just to learn how to be a better pastor, to learn how to love and minister to college students better. Um, so I'm guessing Austin will be there this week as well. So. Um, anyway, just be praying for, for RUF. This is a big week for us, and we appreciate that. Um, if you have a Bible with you this morning, uh, please turn to Isaiah chapter 6, um, a very famous passage, a famous scene um, from the Old Testament where Isaiah, the prophet, um, has, it's not a vision. The Bible just says that he sees it. He, ha he sees the Lord on his throne, seated on the throne. Um, and we're going to be considering worship, and idolatry this morning from this passage. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. <clears throat> Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook, 
at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go to him once again this morning and ask him for his help. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we are breathless at this, uh, this, this depiction, this description that Isaiah gives us of, of, seeing, your, of seeing you being in your presence. And Lord, we pray this morning as, as we are in your presence, as we gather together in the name of Jesus, we pray that you would meet with us, that you would speak to us from your word, that you would, that you would teach us. Lord, we pray that this morning you would expose the idols of our hearts, that you would show us who you really are. Help us to catch a glimpse of, of who you are, that we might see ourselves clearly as well. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much. Um, there was a novel that came out in the mid-90s. It's a massive novel called Infinite Jest. Uh, It's this big postmodern book. It's written by a guy named David Foster Wallace. And in this book, he introduces us to this huge cast of characters. And we see a number of characters in this book who seem to to have wrapped their lives around a certain thing. Right? There's a lot of characters that seem to have poured themselves completely into a certain thing. So, for instance, we see characters who, whose lives revolve around sports. Part of the book takes place at this tennis academy. And these people are just, they, they eat, drink, sleep, breathe tennis. That's all, that's all, that, they, all that they do. We see um, other people in this, we meet other people, part of the book takes place in a halfway house. We meet people whose identities and lives have been wrapped up in drugs. We meet people whose, whose hearts have been wrapped around the pursuit of political power. We see other people who, who um, have, have fallen captive, have fallen, um, just poured themselves into being entertained and seeking entertainment. And you can see why this novel really touches a lot of places, sort of in American culture, covers a lot of bases. And as far as I know, the, the author is not a believer, not a Christian, but, but he has some very incredible and really, you know, biblical insights about worship that, that come across in this book. And I want to share you just a brief paraphrase of a conversation between two characters. There's two characters in the book that sort of sit up on this bluff, this kind of high perch. Kind of, it's almost as if they're kind of overseeing all the other action in, in the book and kind of commenting on it. But let, me, let me read you this brief conversation between two characters named Remy and Hugh. 
<clears throat> it's a conversation about worship and kind of sums up the whole book. Remy says this, Everyone has something that they would die for without thinking twice. And this choice determines everything else in their lives. This is their temple. This is their temple. And Hugh, here's how Hugh responds. He says, I don't believe that. I have never made a choice for something to be my temple. I just do what I want to do. I don't make any conscious decisions to worship anything. And Remy says, then you are a fanatic of desire. You are a slave to yourself. You are by yourself and alone, and you are kneeling to yourself. You are a slave who believes he is free. What's fascinating here is that, that Wallace really nails some of what the Bible is saying about worship. Namely this, the Bible tells us that God has designed us, human beings, to be worshipers. We are worshipers. We were made to worship God. We were made to worship Him, ideally. But we were made and designed to worship. As Bob Dylan said many years ago, you've got to serve somebody, right? Uh, that's true. The Bible says that's true. We were made to serve someone or something. We were made to worship. So the question this morning is not, are you a worshiper? That's... You're, if you're a human being, you're a worshiper. The question for us is who or what do we worship? And before we get into what true worship looks like from Isaiah chapter 6, um, let's consider what worship is for just a moment. You know, we often think of worship as the thing we do in the church service right before the, the preaching, right? That's worship. And that's true. That, that is worship. That's sort of the narrow definition of worship. But we can also speak about worship more broadly. Worship is something that, that we can do anywhere, at any time. Worship is, is an orientation of your heart. Worship is, is when you wrap your heart, when you wrap your life around something, <clears throat> and when you find your ultimate identity in that thing, or when you find your ultimate security in that thing, or your ultimate comfort, your ultimate joy in this thing. Whatever, whatever thing that might be, that's, that's what you're worshiping. That's what you worship. Worship is when you love and adore something above all else. Worship is when you make something your treasure. Last night I was uh, sort of looking over this sermon a little bit, and, and my wife was flipping channels, and she found, I think on TNT or somewhere, the Lord of the Rings movies were on. And um, I could hear, in the other, I was sitting at the kitchen table sort of looking over this, but I could hear in the other room Gollum, right? You remember Gollum, the, uh, the creature, the hobbit, you know, previous former hobbit creature who's just obsessed with the great ring of power, right? And he even calls it, my precious. My precious. That, that is what, Gollum is worshiping this ring, right? That is what worship looks like. When you wrap your whole identity, your whole goals, all of your goals in life, everything wrapped and pursued, wrapped up into, into one thing. So my question for you this, us this morning is, is what, is, what is your precious today? What is your precious? What is the thing that you treasure above all else. So, so every human being is a worshiper. You and I are worshipers. We can't help but to worship. The problem, though, is that the fall happened, right? We are sinners now. We have sinful, wayward hearts that are constantly seeking to worship things other than God. We see this all through the Bible. And when we love something more than God, uh, when we wrap our lives around something that's not God, the Bible calls that, Idolatry, and there's actually a really great quote in, in the quotes and notes portion of your bulletin there. The third quote down from Tim Keller, his, his great book, Counterfeit Gods, about idolatry. 
It's a great definition, a very full definition of idolatry. He says this, what is an idol? And he gives us three kind of characteristics of an idol. It is anything that is more important to you than God. It is anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. It is anything you seek to give you what only God can give. And so that's what we talk about, seeking your ultimate security, identity, in something that's not God. That's idolatry. Seeking, But also he says there's something that, that absorbs your heart and your imagination. What, what, is the, what are the patterns of thought? What are the patterns of your thought life? What are the ruts in your mind, the ruts that you, you're, you sort of go over and over again? When you're not doing anything else, where is your, that your mind goes to um, frequently, all the time? What, what is it that you daydream about? It's not wrong to think about things other than God. It's not wrong to daydream. But if there's something that you just your mind and imagination, your heart are just constantly absorbed by, that thing may be an idol for you. And now we often think about idolatry as as sort of an ancient an ancient issue, ancient problem of little golden statues and people bowing down to it. But idolatry is still a very real temptation, a real problem for us today. John Calvin is frequently quoted as having said, "Our height, our hearts are like idol factories. We can turn anything into an idol." And here's the scary thing for you and me. The things that we typically turn into idols are often very good things. They're often things that God has given to us, gifts that God has given to us, things that are good, right? When we think about idols, we start to think about what are the deep, dark things in my life. Those often aren't going to be your idols. Your idols are often going to be things like your career or uh, your children can be an idol in your life or... um, your money, your stuff, even your theology can be an idol in your life. If that's something you love, if something that you, that you treasure more than the God that the theology is about. It's, it's the good things in our life that often sort of compete with God for the throne of our hearts. It's the good things that, that we often turn into idols, the good gifts that God has given to us. And so we're going to see in our passage this morning the contrast between true worship of the living God and the false worship of idols. So first, our first point this morning, the blessings of true worship. Um, Isaiah 6, as I said, is one of the most memorable, famous scenes in the Bible. It, it would seem that Isaiah sees into the throne room of heaven, right? The text, as I said, doesn't say it's a vision or a dream. It says he sees it. He sees the Lord sitting on his throne, and there are angels flying around and this beautiful description of angels that have covered their faces and covered their feet, these perfect beings, and yet God is still too holy for them to, to look directly onto him. Right? They have to cover themselves because of the great holiness of God. Imagine the effect that this would have on you to see something like this. Imagine what that would do to you. There's a great poem by the, the German poet uh, named Rainer Maria Rilke. And that this poem is called Archaic Torso of Apollo. And this is a real, it's about a statue. It's a, very, it's a real statue that you can go to the Louvre in, in Paris and see the statue, this torso of Apollo. And most of the poem, it's a short poem, this, the, the poet is just describing what the statue looks like. It's a statue. I'm sure at one point it was a full statue. Now all that remains is just the torso of the statue. It's broken. Um, but he's describing the, the statue and, and observing the statue and seeing it and just describing it in very beautiful detail. But what's so amazing to me about this poem is the final line. As he's, after he's described sort of all the different parts of the, of the statue and imagined the parts that are missing, 
The, the last line of the poem, which seems to come out of nowhere, is this. You must change your life. You must change your life. It's as if the poet has been observing this beautiful work of art, this beautiful statue, this, this thing that's of such great beauty and artistic uh, value that it suddenly makes him painfully aware of his own shortcomings as a human being, right? It just sort of undoes him, right, to see such a great work of art. And it seems that that's what's happening to Isaiah here. He sees this display of the Lord's holiness that even the sinless angels can't look upon him when they praise him. And Isaiah is taking this whole scene in and it just sort of undoes him, right? It just sort of breaks him to pieces and he declares, woe is me. And Isaiah is getting a glimpse of who God is. He's getting a glimpse of the living God. And it just leads him to this, just sort of this, uh, you know, uncontrolled um Confession of sin, right? He starts to confess his sin. Woe is me. He catches a glimpse of God, and it causes him, it causes Isaiah to really see himself. And he is immediately and acutely aware of his own sin. And what does he say? He says, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live in the presence of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So the first thing that true worship does for us is it opens our eyes. True worship of the living God opens our eyes. It, it it opens our eyes to, to see God, as, to see who God is, to see him as he really is. And it helps us, in turn, to see who we really are. It exposes us. There's a sense in which true worship recalibrates us, that it rightly aligns our hearts and our minds. And one reason that we need the means of grace, that is, the word and prayer and sacraments, one reason we need that those things is, is not simply just because that's what a Christian is supposed to do. It's it's because that's what we need, that our, our default setting is to be me-centered, to be, to be self-worshippers. And we'll slowly drift back into that position unless we're brought back to the center by the gospel, brought back to the center by the Spirit of God. When we rise in the morning and, and get on our knees to pray and, and, and go to the Bible to read, when we gather together on Sundays, the reason for that is, is because there's a battle in our hearts every day, a battle for who or what we are going to worship. Between a, a battle between loving Jesus or loving something else more than Jesus, and that's why we need that's why we need to do this. That's why we're here today um, to remind ourselves uh, to to recalibrate our hearts, to reorient our hearts to Jesus, to the Lord. The second thing we see about true worship is that in worship, God God is is purifying us. God is making us to look more like Jesus. Right? We see that in the passage this morning as. As Isaiah sort of, as he confesses his sin, as he, you know, is undone uh, by this sight of the Lord, we notice in verses six and seven uh, that an angel comes to him, a seraphim flies to him with tongs and, and a coal from the altar, a burning coal from the altar. And notice Isaiah doesn't do anything to make himself holy. God is the one who sends the angel. Isaiah is terrified that that he may die because he's a sinful man in the presence of a holy God. But something unexpected happens, right? God doesn't banish him. God doesn't send him out. God cleanses him. God purifies him. He declares Isaiah's sin to be atoned for as that coal touches Isaiah's lips. God doesn't do this because there's anything special about Isaiah. That God, Isaiah didn't earn this or deserve it. Later in this very book, in the book of Isaiah, in chapter 53, Isaiah goes on to describe the suffering servant who would come and suffer for sinners. And he describes one who would be wounded for our transgressions. 
And we know this is Jesus, right? That's how Isaiah's sin, that's how our sin is covered by this suffering servant who gave himself, who took the, who took the wounds that our transgressions deserved. But it's interesting that, that the, the, the angel places the, the coal on the very place that Isaiah has confessed his sin, the very, the very place that Isaiah has felt shame and, and guilt about his sin on his lips. I don't know what sin may be, may be troubling you this morning, a sin that you may be struggling with, a sin that a guilt or a shame that may be weighing heavy on your conscience or your heart this morning. Whatever it is, that thing, that, that, that sin that you are most ashamed of, that sin that if, if others were to find out about it, would undo you, right? It terrifies you. It quickens your pulse to even think about it. Whatever, whatever that guilt, that thing that makes you feel so guilty and shameful that you're carrying around, that's where Jesus wants to meet you this morning, in that very place. Some of us think that we have a sin that is too big or too dark or too dirty for God to forgive. There's no way we can't forgive ourselves. There's no way God can forgive us. There's no way this guilt can be wiped away. There's no way this shame can be dealt with. But there is no sin that is so great that Jesus cannot take care of it, that Jesus cannot cover it. It's true that our sin is great, but our Savior is greater. The final thing we see about true worship is that it prepares us. It prepares us for service. It prepares us for service. Notice there's the famous exchange there in verse 8 as God says, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Who's going to be... Who's going to be the messenger to carry our word, to carry our, to carry this message? And, and Isaiah eagerly volunteers, "Here am I. Send me." You know, he's enthusiastically volunteering to go, offering himself for service to be God's messenger. You know, I recently heard someone telling me about a church bulletin that when you looked at the bulletin on the back and it had all the orders, all, all the pieces of worship there. And at the very bottom, it had the benediction, and underneath the benediction, it said this: "The worship has ended." Now let the service begin. And I like that because it, it sort of it gives this idea that, that now that we have met with the risen Savior, now that we have met with Jesus and been with Him, we are, we are prepared now to go into our homes, to go into our neighborhoods, our communities, to go into our workplaces and our schools and, and, to, be, and to serve, right? To serve, to serve King Jesus. We have been with Him. We have worshipped Him. Now we're prepared for service. And we see that with Isaiah here in Isaiah 6. So that's, those are the blessings. Those are three blessings that come from true worship. Let's talk now for, a, for a, a moment about the consequences, our second point this morning, the consequences that come from false worship. Um, so as you know, Isaiah's, as you know this passage, we see Isaiah's commission, right? He, got, he volunteers to, to go to serve. God says, okay, here's your commission. And it's not an easy one. Look at verses 9 and 10. God says, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but not, do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Not an easy, not an easy task he's been given. Not an easy commission for Isaiah. But how does this relate to idol worship? Where do we see idol worship in this, in this passage? There's no mention of worship or idols or anything like that. Well, whenever we see this type of language in the Old Testament, um, it is almost always a reference to idolatry. Um, and it all seems to come from this very important psalm. If you'll turn, you can turn with me or I'll read it to you. Psalm 115. If you look there, um, 
Psalm 115, we read uh, in verses 4 through 8 this, this description of, of the, the kind of idols we often think of, right? The little statues, the little gold and silver idols. We see a description of that and something very surprising about it. Here's what uh, the psalmist writes in 115, verses 4 through 8. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. And so the, the description here is of a little golden statue, right, that, that probably looks uh, you know, like a human in some respects, has ears and eyes and, and all this stuff kind of carved into it. And the psalmist is in some ways making a, it seems almost like sort of a, almost a joke, right? It has eyes, but it can't see. It has ears, but it can't hear. But that, that last verse, verse 8, is so chilling. Those who make them become like them, as do all who trust in them. That what we're seeing here is this idea in the Bible that you become like the thing that you worship, right? If you worship the living God, you worship Jesus, uh, you're sanctified, right? You, that, 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 you're going to become more like Jesus. If, you're, if he is seated on the throne of your heart, if he is your treasure, you'll become more like him in holiness. But if we worship something other than Jesus, if we worship an idol, we're going to become like that thing. And notice there's another quote in, in, your, um, in the quotes and notes there, this great quote by uh, respected Bible scholar Greg Beale, the first quote there on the page. He wrote a book called We Become What We Worship. And here's what he says. He says, What people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or restoration. What people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or restoration. Whatever you worship, what's the thing that you treasure and revere? You're going to resemble that thing. And it's either going to ruin you or it's going to restore you. So what God is telling Isaiah is the people he is going to go preach to are already worshiping idols, right? Because they, they already are exhibiting these characteristics. Um, and, and, and idol worship can be a great temptation during times of, of prosperity. As I mentioned, it's often the good gifts that God gives to us that we turn into idols. Isaiah 6 is taking place at the very end of King Uzziah's reign, right? As Isaiah says, it was the year that King Uzziah died that I saw this. And uh, King Uzziah's reign was a time of great prosperity for the nation of Israel. God is sending Isaiah to preach, and he's essentially saying, he's essentially saying, look, if you want these idols so badly, then I will give you, I'll give you your idols, right? I'll give you over to them. Seems to be the message that God is is uh, sending Isaiah to preach. So the first consequence of, of idol worship, of false worship, <coughs> excuse me, the first consequence that we see is is that it idol worship. False worship dulls our spiritual senses, right? It, it makes our hearts dull. The literal Hebrew, that, that word that's used here is actually fat. Uh, makes our hearts fat. It's as if the heart is so covered in fat, it can no longer feel any sensation. It, it can no longer feel the prick of conscience. We also read that, that it makes their ears heavy, right? They can't hear. They can't perceive spiritual truth. And finally, it blinds their eyes. The Hebrew here has this connotation of, of, of a very sticky substance 
that is rubbed over the eyes and dries to, to, to be a very, you know, almost like concrete, a very hard, um, hard substance that can't open their eyes. Those who, be, who worship idols will, will become like them, right? Spiritually dull and blind and deaf. The second consequence that we see of false worship, <clears throat> of idol worship, is that it, it leads to downfall. Right? Isaiah asked God in verse 11, right, how, mu- how, how long must I preach this message? How long is this to be my commission? And God basically says, until their idols are finished with them. Right? God's, he mentions the, the empty, destroyed cities, the people being removed far away. The land is full of forsaken places. He, he's referring to the fact that, that Israel is going to be conquered by Assyria. That their, their idolatry is going to lead to the fall of this nation, that it's, it's going to create a war, it's going to leave a war-torn path in its, in its wake. But more devastating than that, idols bring about spiritual downfall in our lives because they demand so much from us and they give us nothing in return. We give and we give to our idols until we're empty. But the idol is never satisfied. And one problem with idolatry is, is that it promises to give you something that it can never deliver. Because it promises, it promises things that it can't, it can't give you. you know, I mentioned earlier uh, David Foster Wallace, uh, his book Infinite Jest. I'm going to have a second David Foster Wallace quote here. Um, he gave a commencement speech at Kenyon University in, in Ohio in 2006. And um, he, he kind of talks about some of the themes from his book, Infinite Jest. He kind of talks about in this speech, this commencement speech. And again, I don't think this you know, guy was a believer. Um, but, but again, he, he hit some nails right on the head here. Here's what he says. It's a little bit of a longer quote, so bear with me, please. Here's what he says to these group of college graduates. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. An outstanding reason for choosing uh, some sort of God to, thing to worship, again, he's not a, I don't think he's Christian, um, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You will, you will never feel that you have enough. If you worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, then you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. If you worship power, you will feel weak and afraid. And you will, you will need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. If you worship your intellect being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. We, we are worshipers. There, there is no way around that. But if you pick something other than the Lord Jesus to worship, as, as David Foster Wallace says, it will eat you alive. We worship God, right, and he satisfies us. He fills us. He makes us more like Jesus. We worship idols. They empty us. They drain us. They require more and more from us, and ultimately, they can destroy us. Our wayward hearts often take the very best things of life the most rewarding things, God's greatest gifts and blessings to us, and and our heart wants to turn those things into idols. We want to worship the gift rather than the giver. So how do we guard our hearts against that? Uh, I was reading a blog post recently from a Christian blogger, Tim Challies. Um, You may have heard him or read his blog. Um, And he had met with some counterfeit 
uh, money experts in the, at, at the Bank of Canada. Uh, Chalice is a Canadian citizen. And so he, he wanted to go and to talk to them about how, how do they train people to spot counterfeit bills. And the answer is not, not by studying counterfeit bills. The answer is they, they, they learn to spot counterfeits by studying the real, the real bills, by studying the genuine article, the real thing. They immerse themselves in studying the real money so deeply that they can immediately tell when something's off in a counterfeit. They can immediately see it. So how do we guard our hearts against idolatry? It can be, which can be so hard. Well, we do it by training our hearts to know the real deal. Setting our minds and our hearts, our desires on the Lord Jesus. Finding our delight in Him. Tasting and seeing that He is good. And so then our hearts will know the, the real thing so well that we'll instantly spot a substitute. We'll instantly know uh, an idol. This is why it's so important to see worship is not something that just we do just at church on Sunday mornings, but worship is, is a way of life. Um, it's something we do in every moment of the day. Because if I view my work and my grades and my children and my bank account, if I view all those things as a part of the way that I'm worshiping God, right? I'm, I'm receiving those things with gratitude as good gifts from God. And those that are part my, I'm worshiping God through enjoying those things and through... Um, taking care of those things, it's harder for me to turn those things into idols. I want to close just one final story here. Um, in The Silver Chair, uh, one of the books in the Chronicles of Narnia series by C.S. Lewis, The Silver Chair, there's a scene where a little girl, Jill Pole, is trying to get a drink from a stream of water. And there's a problem. Aslan, who is this great lion, who, if you're familiar with the series, is the, is the Christ figure. He represents Jesus uh, in the series, uh, he, he's, he's standing right by the stream, and, and Jill is very afraid of him. And, as you, um, and so here, here's the, the conversation they have. Are you not thirsty, said the lion? I am dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. Would you mind going, Jill says, would you mind going away while I do? The lion answered this, the lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed, at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. Brothers, brothers and sisters, what I'm telling you this morning is this that you and I were born thirsty. We've been thirsty our entire lives, right? And our hearts are desperately seeking something to quench our thirst. But what the gospel is telling us, what the Bible is telling us, is there is only one stream. There's only one stream that will quench your thirst and satisfy you. There's only one person to whom we can go to be satisfied. It's the suffering servant. It's the good shepherd. It's the king, the Lord of hosts. It's Jesus. And he invites sinners like us to come to him 
to, to fall at his feet, to worship, and to be satisfied. Amen. Let me pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much that you, that you love thirsty sinners like us, that you invite us to come and drink. Those who have no money, those who have nothing to give, you invite us to come and drink freely. Lord, I pray that we would heed that call, that we would, we would learn to be satisfied, we would learn to delight in you, and that idol, the idols that so easily clog up our hearts would, would offer us nothing, that we would, not, we would not find satisfaction, we would not find them to be uh, tempting to us as we are so satisfied in you. I pray this in, this, in the name of Jesus this morning. Amen.